0: Assalamu asalhan, dear listener. I'm Michael Rakowitz, artist and director of Radio Silence, a broadcast about Iraq and its displacements, presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia, with major support from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hummingbird Foundation. Project collaborators include the Prometheus Radio Project, as well as many agencies and nonprofits that work on refugee and veteran issues, and community media. Radio Silence is made in collaboration with the Vibrance Iraqi community of Philadelphia and Iraq War veterans who are part of Warrior Writers, a Philadelphia based community of military service members, artists, allies, and healers dedicated to creativity and wellness. Bajat al dubbed the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife Haifa Abdelkader, also a broadcaster arrived as refugees in the city of brotherly love in 2009. The program became a portrait of Iraq in miniature as Bajat fell ill with a serious respiratory ailment after our first recording session, necessitating an emergency tracheostomy. The voice of Iraq lost its voice. Months later, Bajat Wahed passed away. Our host has become a ghost, another casualty of the war. At his funeral, Bajat's friends spoke about how our project was even more important now. The show must go on, they insisted, to illustrate just how much of the country was slipping away, to resist cultural amnesia, to hold on to the best of what Iraq was, and what their new lives as Americans would be. And so we begin episode four. Shyness, reticence. Withdrawal. We begin today's episode with residue, with sand on our boots, sugar on the ground, and half-finished cups of tea back in Bajat and Haifa's living room in January 2016. In fact, we begin right where we left off, with a discussion about Haifa Wede, the singer of the infamous Buselwawa. Bajat tells Haifa that if she and Haifa Webbe were both in the same room, he would still choose her. The humorous discussion and jabbing that unfolds is typical of a couple that has been together for more than 50 years.
1: No, not you. You are, you are more than beautiful than her.
2: <laughs>
0: To me, to me.
1: To me, to me. This uh, is Aisha. If, if Haifa Hifa be now here and you are beside Haifa, okay. I choose you. Okay, good. Good, I choose you. Go, say me why. What? Let me live. Let me live, please. Yeah, okay. Live me. We, me and Haifa, we lived uh, the very happy, happy, happy days. Happy days. Yeah, I, know. I advise any any people he wants to marry. Want to they stable, they must be love between together. Better. Okay. Better, very good.
0: As Haifa explains next, in an interview recorded in April 2017, it wasn't always a love story between her and Bajat. In fact, she hated him when they first met.
3: I met Bajat al-Sheikhli when I was announcer in TV and broadcasting station uh, in Iraq. He was the, the chief announcer in the Iraqi Television that time. I worked there around uh, two years only. Uh, Behjet was responsible for the all uh, yani, announcers in the television. But uh, once I'm preparing myself to give the news, Behjet said, Let your friends have the time. I said why it's my time to read the news. But he said I said that and that's all. I doesn't care. <laughs> I started reading the news. When I finished the news, I went to the high manager. I told him that budget don't let me give the news. I said I will resign until uh, budget transferred from the television to the radio. They were surprised. They want me because I have programs, people want to see me when, and they love me. Uh, that few days, I didn't go to the, the, the TV building. I decided not to go until to transfer budget.
0: So, with the ultimatum that the station transfer Bajat, or risk losing Haifa, the gauntlet had been thrown down. Unfortunately, it meant the end of Haifa's broadcasting career, as she left when the TV station decided to retain Bajat and build their broadcasts around him. But it seemed that Bajat Abdelwahed was not done with Haifa Abdelkader.
3: After um, two weeks... I saw Behjat's mother in our house. I thought that maybe she's coming, because I know she knows my mother as a friend. After uh, two or three hours, my mother came. She was talking with me. She said, Haifa, hey, Behjat wants to marry you. Behjat wants to marry me? I couldn't, I couldn't see him um, in a studio. How I will live with him in a house? I can't. It's impossible. <laughs> she said, it's up to you now, please. Try to think. He's a very good man. He's a very good uh, announcer. My mother loves him, really. I uh, told my mom that I don't want him. I will not marry this man. I can't see him. But after one week or less than one week, Behjad called me. He start talking. He said that uh, you are a very good announcer. You have a, you know, a beautiful voice or something like that. And uh, I don't want to hurt you. I just want to help you to be more than you are. I said, please close the telephone. I I don't want this any this talk. Um, I don't want anyone to talk about the news about the, and I, I will not be as announcer. No, no, I, I stop. But after that, I married him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just like that. <laughs>
3: Really, yeah, everybody when hear this story, uh, they 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 are surprised really. What happened in the beginning and what, what happened changed? at the end? <laughs> yeah, yes. it's a kind, it's love story.
0: Yeah. There's an American uh, movie. Movie. Called yeah. Anchorman.
3: Yes, yes, where... I, I I remember that film. <laughs> I remember that. film <laughs> Yes, I remember that film. We have seen it. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. It was a really nice film. Did, did and you, even my film, yeah. it was true film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Attempting to bridge seemingly reconcilable divides as the foundation for a love story does sound like a cliché plot device for a film, and a much easier thing to imagine than to practice. Mending the wide and deep breach created as a result of war between invader and invaded, between occupier and occupied, between oppressor and oppressed, also seems impossible. But as you will hear in our next segment, dear listener, it is that crossing that is the material for the work and life of a former combat veteran. Indeed, it is another unfolding love story. Aaron Hughes is an artist, teacher, organizer, and Iraq War veteran whose work seeks out poetics, connections, and moments of beauty in order to construct new languages and meanings out of personal and collective traumas. He uses these new languages and meanings to create projects that attempt to deconstruct systems of dehumanization and oppression. Aaron has become a dear friend and collaborator on projects since we first met in 2007. We recorded a conversation together in the summer of 2017, shortly after I returned from visits with Iraqi emigres and refugees living in Amman, Jordan. I came back with something sweet to share with him, something I'd not tasted properly since I was a child. And this is called Menwa Salwa. Oh, wow. And it is... Uh, it's basically like a honeydew that is produced by an aphid in, um, northern Iraq. It actually, cut, you know, falls onto the, the forest floor. They take that, that basically it's like a honey and they boil it up and they remove the sticks and things like that. But then they build around it and they put in like, uh, pistachios and cardamom, sometimes a little bit of rose water. They call it Menasema, and also Jewish Iraqis think that it's what, you know, fell from the sky when God gave manna, you know, to the Jews in exile during their exodus from Egypt. This is what they sustained you know, sustain themselves off of.
2: Shukran, made in Iraq. It's beautiful. Cardamom's in there. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's really good. It's really good. In
0: Iraq... Hospitality is the first language. Before any important business or conversation happens, tea, and often more, is offered. But hospitality and hostility derive from the Latin hospice, meaning host, guest, or stranger. Hospice is formed from hostis, which means stranger or enemy. As you will hear Aaron's life since returning from the war has been an investment in reclaiming the humanity that was lost during the war. Hospitality is central to that investment, as is Parisia, or truth-telling.
2: I'm going I'm to tell you another story first, and then I can tell you the story of going back to Iraq. Um, but before, going, before I ever went back to Iraq as a civilian... I was studying art, and I wanted to find a, way, like, find a way to give back for the work not just to be about like, sharing with people about what I, my experience in the war, but a way to actually help people that have been victimized by the war. And so I was selling these, uh, these drawings, and I donated it all to the Global Milk Relief Fund. And so I think they thought like I was some kind of like you know, major donor or something. So when I was in New York, I asked them, like, hey, can I come visit you? And they were like, yeah, we'd love you to come visit. Please come spend some time with us. They were stationed at Staten Island. And what they were doing was, um, for kids in war-torn countries around the world that had been um, wounded, um, they would bring them to the States to go to use the Shriners Hospital, which is a free hospital for children. Um, But they would... Gold mail release fund would do the work of bringing them, getting them to the united states hosting them making sure their family member is dealing with all the paperwork um you know all these kind of logistical things that it would take to actually just be there to get treated and um, it's really amazing work and they had been helping a lot of kids that had been wounded and lost limbs in iraq and they said, "Yeah, come, come, hang out." And so I took the Staten Island the ferry across, and they picked me up from the ferry, and you know, I got in the car, and it's this big SUV and the car, you know takes, us, takes me over to this uh, this church complex where they had some housing, and um, this young boy who uh, was blind and lost his arm. He just comes up to me and uh, he came up to me because he knew where I was because of my voice. And he didn't really speak very much English. And um, he just grabs my arm. And the very first thing he says to me you know, is run. Please run. Because he wants to run. He's a nine-year-old boy. He doesn't get to run because he needs someone to guide him. Because the things he can't see—the little stumps, the steps, all of the barriers that are out there—so he just needs somebody to hold his hand so he can run. And so we just start running, and you know, this nine-year-old boy—I, I, you know, he, he lost his sight and his arm in crossfire between U.S. service members um and supposedly insurgents he was on his way home from school he got caught in the crossfire his arm got hit with a shrapnel of some kind and lit on fire he put his arms up to his eyes and he burnt his eyes and um, they stitched his eyes shut for lack of medical resources and um, he ended up losing some of his fingers and his hand his arm and uh You know, he didn't care who I was. He didn't care that I was a soldier. That I mean, he didn't care. I could have been in that firefight. He didn't care. He just grabbed my hand and wanted to run. And there's something about that that it challenges me to remind myself continuously that, you know, life is for love and trust and hope and not fear and anger. You know, if, imagine you can live your whole life being extremely afraid to ask anybody to run with you after that. After Being in such a tragic, painful state. And yet, this kid was fearless. No fear. Fearlessness. Dear listener,
0: I'm reminded of the Iraqi doctor from episode one. Do you remember him? He was too angry to convey the loss and terror he witnessed. Thus, he wanted to remain silent. It is as if Aaron is his surrogate in this section, not marking the space with silence, but with fearless listening. Can fearless listening enable fearless speaking?
2: If it wasn't for that boy and his generosity, his willingness to grab my hand, you know, his, his fearlessness to grab my hand, um, you know, I don't think I would have had the guts to uh, begin to speak out against the war, you know he—I met this boy before I said anything publicly about Iraq, and he—the thing is—he had to go back to Iraq, and I was scared. I was still in the Mil- in the National Guard, and I was afraid I was going to get redeployed, and uh, I was scared of getting redeployed. Really scared of it re- I knew I was like I, sur- I had no, nobody in my unit died, and I was like, there's no way you can get that lucky. Tw- Here's this kid. He's just going to go back to Iraq. It's not a big deal. And I'm afraid. I was like, if this kid can go back to Iraq, and I can say something, I can speak up, I can do something. And uh, you know, that led me to getting involved with Iraq Veterans Against the War and telling, talking about my experience of deploying and highlighting the hypocrisies of our occupation of Iraq. And it was through that work with Iraq Veterans Against the War that uh, I was invited by U.S. Labor Against the War and by the conference organizers of the first international labor conference in Erbil to come to Iraq to represent Iraq Veterans Against the War at this big international labor conference. I went there as a, as a witness to listen to what these workers from across Iraq wanted, and to bring that back and tell their stories and let people know this is what the people, this is what the Iraqis said they want. This is what they believe. This is what they need. You know, I got over there and I was hearing these stories that I had never heard before. You know, these delegations would go up in front of the whole auditorium of workers and they would tell their struggle, their story of. You know, the electrical workers whose power plant was occupied by the U.S. military. And the electrical workers weren't allowed back on to the power plant because they were seen as a security threat. And so they started demonstrating and protesting. And part of why they they wanted to keep demonstrating was because it wasn't just their jobs. It was power to their whole community, but it was also power to the water purification plant. So this power plant was a life source in their community. They kept protesting and demonstrating, and their protests grew. And the power plans of getting surrounded, and the central government you know, sends somebody down from Baghdad and says, you have to stop doing what you're doing. You guys are going to piss off the U.S. military. You're going to be forcibly removed. And they say, no. This is for our families and for our communities. And with that acknowledgement, with that understanding, that everyone thought, you know, this is it. This, they're going to come to blows, and many of them might die. And just before they're all forcibly removed, the US military comes out and says, We're leaving. And they left the power plant. These electrical workers nonviolently forced the US military, the biggest, strongest, most powerful military in the world, out of their power plant nonviolently. I never heard that story before. I never heard the story of the oil workers in the South forced the British military out of their oil fields. You know, I never heard the story of all the teachers that kept schools going, despite the fact that we had closed so many down. Or the women's health groups that were coming, women health, health programs going, despite the fact that so many hospitals had been destroyed. And, you know, after hearing all these stories, they turn to me, the conference organizers, and they're like, okay, it's your turn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, 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 no i'm taking notes yeah, i'm listening to the translations as they come through i'm trying to make sure i get all the right details um but i'm i'm not here to speak to anybody i mean who who am i i, I don't i don't know if you understand i i was in the u.s military and they're like no you know you, you came here as a peace delegate for iraq veterans against the war we want you to speak So I went up on stage with another Iraq veteran against the war member, TJ. And, um, you know, I started off by saying, you know, I was here in your country. I pointed my weapon at your families and at your communities, and for that I'm sorry. But I'm not here for forgiveness. I'm here to take responsibility. And then I told him about Aaron Watada, the first officer who refused to deploy to Iraq and went to jail. I told him about Camilo Mejia, the first NCO who got back from his deployment in Iraq and refused to redeploy. I told him about the countless war resistors that went to Canada, number of service members and veterans that were getting back from Iraq and speaking out against the war. And I told him about all the American people and how the American people didn't support the war in Iraq. And after I was done speaking, this man, he jumps up in the back of the auditorium and he starts yelling something really, really loud in Arabic and just starts booking it down towards the stage. And I'm like, well, this is it. And, you know, I really think he's just about to come up and beat the crap out of me. And and just as he comes up on stage, you know, I hear the translation come through the little earpiece. And I just want to come up on stage and give this gentleman a hug. And he grabs me and he hugs me. And I started to cry. You know, this man was in the Iraqi military and he had fought against the invading forces. He served in the Oil Workers Union and forced the British military out of the oil fields. And there he was hugging me. The well, only way is, I guess, uh, you know, this six five guests from the united states being myself um crying in front of this 400 some iraqi workers from all over the country wasn't the conference organizers idea of a good time so they kind of quickly like grab me and they like take me off the stage and they bring me out of the tori- out of the auditorium and they sit me down and they serve me tea and you see my whole deployment i was offered tea Again and again and again. It was offered tea by the Iraqis, the Kuwaitis, the third country nationals. And I always refused. In my unit, we racialized it. And we'd call it Haji water. And despite that, we'd be offered tea again and again. This radical gesture of hospitality despite. And... You know, that time that they sat me down, I still got tears in my eyes and they, they make me a cup of tea and it's the first cup of Iraqi tea that I ever had. And that was the thing that I brought back from Iraq on that trip was that there is this radical hospitality despite despite everything. There is this gesture. And that's something that I feel like is not often discussed or shared here in the United States. And so I wanted to find a way to share that, share that gesture of hospitality that's so rooted in the Iraqi culture that it transcends all of the violence all of the dehumanization that's been perpetuated. And it reflects the humanity that's so great, so massive, this humanity of the Iraqi people. You know, when I refused those cups of tea, you know, it wasn't and when I called it Haji water, and they continued to offer me tea. They didn't lose their humanity through my insults. through my rejections it was me that lost my humanity and in some ways I think many of us in America have lost our ability to acknowledge other people's humanity and when we do we lose our own And that's a scary place for a society to be in.
0: The hospitality of truth. Accountability. As we close today's episode, I think of the bitter things that could be offered in the name of truth. Yes, there are many. And in its enunciation, transformation is possible. But there was something in Aaron's recounting of tea, of its sweetness. There was something in the sweetness of the manal sema, the nougat we shared that I brought back from Iraq via Jordan. There was something in the bitterness that was the foundation of Haifan Bajat's relationship that turned sweet over the 50 plus years they were together, like dates ripening on a palm tree. Dates in Iraq are legendary and there are over 600 different varieties. Dates are to Iraq what the cigar is to Cuba, and what cheese is to France. In the 1970s, it accounted for the country's second largest export next to oil, and Iraqi dates were revered all over the world. During this time, there were over 30 million date palms across the country. At the end of the Iran-Iraq war, that number dwindled to 16 million. After the U.S.-led invasion in 2003, less than three million remained. Casualties of the war. In Iraq, it is customary for parents to place a date into the mouth of a newborn baby so that the first taste of life is sweet. And so, at times when the bitterness takes over, when we are starved for sweetness... I ask you, dear listener, to remember Aaron and Haifa and to know well an Iraqi prophetic saying. A house with a date palm will never starve. That's it for today's episode. Radio Silence is curated by Elizabeth Thomas. Special thanks to our project manager, Abigail Satinsky, to our sound engineer, Nate Sandberg to Warrior Writers and their director, Lavella Kalika, to all our Iraqi participants and the resettlement agencies that connected us to them, and to Jane Golden and everyone at Mural Arts. Our deepest gratitude and love to Bajat Abdel Wahed and his wife, Haifa Ibrahim Abdelkader. Original music for Radio Silence is composed by Hana Khouri and performed with the Radio Silence Ensemble. Join us next week when we talk about silent letters, the unsaid, the unwritten, and the unanswered. Until then, good night, dear listener. For Radio Silence, I'm Michael Rakowitz, and this was Iraq.